go ahead and turn to the book of John. We're going to be looking at John chapter 2, 13 through 22. This is the cleansing of the temple. So John 2, 13 through 22. Part of our series through John, it still feels like we're just getting started. We haven't even turned a page yet. And this is part of the series called Just That Simple. Jesus plus belief equals life. And that is the overall theme of this book. John writes these things so that people will believe in Jesus and have life. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we approach your word in reverence and in awe. We ask for the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit so that we can understand this passage We want to see its original meaning. We want to understand the the message, the overall point of this passage. And then also, Father, we want to be able to apply it. We want to understand what what you intended for us to take away from this passage. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. For those of us who are living in the suburbs, now it's going to be different if you live in rural America, but for those of us who live in the suburbs and really any suburbs of a major U.S. city, and someone comes up to you and says, I'll meet you on Saturday morning at Home Depot. One of the first questions that probably pops into your mind is, which one? If you do a, a search, Home Depot's near me, you're, you're probably going to get multiple hits. You may get two or maybe even three that are close by, and depending on where you live, you may be equal distant to, to one or more of those Home Depots. Which one? It turns out there are 1,993 Home Depots in the U.S. So we're going to have to be a little more specific if someone asks you, to meet you at Home Depot. How about this one? I'll meet you at Chipotle. Again, there are 3,137 in the U.S. Dunkin' Donuts. It it gets worse. 9,370. 9,000 Dunkin' Donuts all over America. They're they're everywhere. Starbucks, even more. 15,841. If we're setting up a meeting at Starbucks, we've got to specify which one we mean. And then finally, probably the granddaddy of them all, what if somebody says, I'll meet you at the gas station? <laughs> you might as well say, I will meet you on the street corner downtown because they're, they're everywhere. Experts disagree because there's just so many and there are new ones being built all the time between 111,000 and 145,000 gas stations in the United States. And the point is this, for all these places, there's not just one address. There are multiple addresses. There are thousands of addresses. They are, by design, located all over for consumer convenience. What about God? Does God have multiple addresses? In our passage this morning, Jesus gives his second sign. It's the cleansing of the temple. 
And not only is Jesus zealous for worship, pure worship, and for his father's house, but Jesus, through his death and resurrection, makes the old covenant temple obsolete. But the theme or the the illustrative hook that we're going to hang the message on this morning is that both the old covenant temple, the temple of Jerusalem, and Jesus have only one address. There's only one place. In the the Old Testament, the temple was the only address. If you wanted to worship Yahweh God in the temple, if you wanted to offer sacrifices, that was it. Nowhere else. Likewise, there is one and only one Son of God. If you want to approach God, if you want to meet God, if you want to have your sins forgiven, there is one address, and that address is the Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one address. Let's read this passage. Uh, It's rather short. And it covers the cleansing of the temple. This is John 2, starting at verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. We need to set the stage for this second sign So starting in verse 13, we're we're going to talk a little bit about the background and about what's what's going on. It starts with saying the Passover of the Jews was at hand. The the Passover was a celebration that looked back to the exodus from Egypt. If you remember your Old Testament history, God delivered his people from Egypt under King Pharaoh, Pharaoh of Egypt and under slavery. And he did this through the use of sending 10 plagues that were visited upon the Egyptians. And the last plague was the worst plague. The last plague was the killing of all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. But God protected his people and he gave them instructions. And he said, if you take a lamb and you sacrifice the lamb and you take the blood of the lamb and you spread it over the door frame of your house, When I come and visit the firstborn, I will see that blood and I will pass over that household and the destroyer will not enter and you will be saved. Exodus 12, 21 through 23 says this. This is the direct quote from from Exodus. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. 
Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. So the Passover that was going on, this is the the festival that Jesus is walking in on. This Passover looked back to the Egyptian exodus and God's provision and God's protection and God's deliverance. John records three Passovers. This one, right here in chapter 2, another one in John chapter 6, verse 4, and then a final Passover at the end of Jesus' ministry in John chapter 13, verse 1. John tells us that Jesus cleansed the temple during this first Passover at the beginning of his ministry. However, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all record Jesus cleansing the temple at the last Passover, right before he went to the cross. To some, this difference in the Gospel accounts serves as a basis to criticize the Bible claim that it is inaccurate. There can be only one cleansing, they say. It's either at the beginning or the end. Three of them say it's at the end, and this other one says it's at the beginning. They can't all be right. Therefore, they conclude, if we can't trust the gospel writers to get it right about this detail, how can we trust the gospel writers to get any detail right? Others claim that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all correct, And that John is telling the same story, but in a different place. They say, no, 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 Matthew, Mark, and Luke got it right. He cleansed the temple at the end of his ministry. However, John is is lifting and kind of scooping up that that account, and he's bringing it over here, and he's placing it at the beginning of his gospel to make a theological or literary point. There are a couple problems with that. One is that no one can seem to agree on what that literary or theological point might be. Um, Another is the fact that if John is telling a story or an account of of Jesus cleansing the temple, but he's putting it in the beginning and he's making it appear as if it occurs at the beginning of his ministry, he's lying. Uh, Say what you want about uh, artistic license or literary license as the writer of the gospel, but if, if you're taking something that happened at this time and saying, no, 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 it happened at this time, that's that's deception. That's a lie. That's not true. So I have a big problem with, with putting John uh, in the position of uh, an editor who simply moved it around. Some say John wanted to establish Jesus' passion for true worship at the beginning, so he put it up in front. Others say that John had to move it around to make room for other things that he wanted to put later in John, so he put it at the beginning to make room, as if there is a set amount of pages that John was tied to, to writing. I don't buy that. Here's the thing. All these criticisms and really blind assertions disappear with a more natural and simple explanation. And that is this. There were two temple cleansings, one at the beginning of his ministry and one at the end of his ministry. The second Passover, Jesus is up in Galilee. He was only in Jerusalem for two Passovers, this one and the one at the end. There are many reasons why that makes sense. 
uh, too, too many really to go into. We're not going to continue to camp out here, but there, there are many reasons. Uh, the, the reactions are different. Uh, Jesus's uh, rebukes get stronger on the second one. Um, they don't seek to arrest him on this first one, but they do on the second one. There, there, there are a lot of reasons, but the primary reason is that the Holy Spirit is the author and inspirer of this word, and the Holy Spirit does not lie. Many modern critics, I think you need to know this just so you're armed with this knowledge. Many modern critics don't like when the Bible repeats itself. They don't like two things. They don't like two temple cleansings. It's, it's the same thing in, for example, Genesis. In Genesis 12, Abraham tries to pass off his wife Sarah as his sister before Pharaoh. And then later on in chapter 20, he does the same thing with Abimelech. And the modern writers, or excuse me, excuse me, the modern critics say, oh no, no, there can't be two. Um, this isn't right. One of, this, one of them didn't happen. No, it did happen. We need to accept the word of God as it is written and not impose our uh, arbitrary dislikes upon the word of God. So the Jerusalem Passover, the Jews observed Passover and then immediately afterwards there was a seven-day festival of unleavened bread. So the whole thing kind of went together and a lot of Jews from the surrounding regions made their way to Jerusalem for the Passover and the, and the seven days after it. Why? Because there was only one address where they could worship God and offer sacrifices. If they wanted to offer a sacrifice to God in his temple, they had to go to Jerusalem. And so this was one of the dates in the Jewish year where they made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. The population, again, depending on who you, you talk to and who you read, the population, which might have been at or under around 100,000 normally, would swell sometimes up to possibly 2 million. So there was this massive influx of people into the city of Jerusalem around Passover. And they, of course, they wanted to offer sacrifices. So instead of bringing all these animals that you would need for sacrifice with you, depending on how far, how far away you were from Jerusalem, it was much easier to simply bring some money along and buy the animals there. There were a lot of reasons to do that. The animals would slow you down. It would take longer to get there. The animals could be stolen by bandits. Uh, the animals could get hurt or injured. Uh, the animals could get attacked by wild animals. I mean, there's just all kinds of reasons why you would want to buy the animals instead of bringing them all with you. And this is why we have vendors in Jerusalem that are more than willing to sell their animals for sacrifice. Just pay here and you can get whatever you need. But before you pay... Make sure you exchange your currency for the temple currency. Here's the other thing about Passover. The only coinage that was allowed if you wanted to make a monetary sacrifice, if you wanted to make a donation to the temple, they would only allow what was called Tyrian coinage because of its high silver content. These people were coming from all over the place. They had all kinds of different currencies with them, some of varying quality they would only accept the good stuff. So you had to exchange your money for the good money in order to make a monetary offering. And of course, the money changers would take your currency and, for a fee, exchange it. Now you might think, okay, well, that, that sounds reasonable. A, a small fee 
for every time someone changed their currency. Remember, if there was an influx of two million people coming in, do the math. A, a small fee multiplied by a million or two million in those days? This was big money. This was easy money. People weren't going to just not sacrifice if the price was too high. They were worshiping God. And behind the scenes, overseeing everything in the temple were, you guessed it, the Jewish leaders. John refers to the Jewish leaders in the Gospel of John as the Jews. This was the Sanhedrin. This was the Sadducees, the Pharisees. And although there is no direct biblical evidence to suggest that they were profiting off of this uh, business and these transactions that were taking place in the temple, we know this. There was no one else that had the authority to authorize this transaction and in these types of buying and selling in the temple complex. No one else had the authority to allow someone in and set up a booth. It had to be the leaders. And I doubt they would do it for free. I sincerely doubt it. Either a percentage, maybe a flat fee to rent a space. And these vendors would be allowed on site. On site, meaning inside the temple complex, inside the walls of the temple complex. Finally, where exactly in the temple? Well, if, if you are familiar with the old Jerusalem, you've probably seen a map maybe in the back of your Bible or something like that. But Jerusalem was this city, this walled city, and then dominating the landscape of the city of Jerusalem was the Temple Mount. By Jesus' day, it was 36 acres of enclosed wall Temple Mount. That is a huge chunk of real estate. And inside this temple complex, you had the temple itself. You had outside of that uh, a court area with the uh, priest's area and the, the altar where the sacrifices were made. You had areas for uh, Jewish men. You had another area for Jewish women. And then around that section, you had a wall. And on the wall, posted at the gates were stone signs, stone inscriptions, warning Gentiles not to enter under penalty of death. And we actually have some of these stones. They were discovered in 1871 by archaeologists, and we have them. You can go online and look them up and look at them yourself. And they say, literally translated, quote, no foreigner is to enter the barriers surrounding the sanctuary he who is caught will have himself to blame for his death, which will follow. That is the ultimate keep out sign. That is the ultimate uh, a mud flap with Yosemite Sam dual wielding pistol saying back off. This is, this is, you are going to be executed if you cross that threshold. Don't do it. That was the only place where the Gentiles could worship God in the temple. And that is where they set up the vendors, the booths, the animals, the money exchangers. Temple cleansing, starting in verse 14. Now that we have that stage set, that's what Jesus was walking into. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Jesus walked into his father's house. He walked into the temple and he found vendors, animals, and money changers. 
Instead of a holy place, he saw a marketplace. Instead of worshipers, he saw buyers and sellers. The only address where the non-Jew could worship God in the temple had been taken over. So if the only place where you could worship God had been taken over, that means you don't have a place to worship God in the temple. You're just out of luck. You've been displaced. And let's just go ahead and complete the picture here. Uh, What happens when you gather a large number of animals in one small concentrated area in a pen? Have you ever been to a farm or a zoo? How long would it take before the whole place started to stink? Jesus walked into the temple, the temple of Yahweh God, and the floor is covered in feces and urine. That's what Jesus walked into. Here's his response in verse 15. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. It says Jesus made a whip and drove them out. He wasn't whipping people. Okay? He, was, he was using that to remove the temple animals that were in there. If you've ever, uh, again, have any experience on a farm, oxen, like cows, are very large animals. And if they don't want to move, then they won't move. You can walk up to one and lean your shoulder into one and push with everything you've got, and they're not going to move. They need some motivation. So the whip was to motivate the animals. There's been all kinds of depictions and and accounts of Jesus and and people's uh, rendering and what they think it's like. I remember seeing one several years ago, I think it was was as a child on TV, where Jesus had this whip and he was running around and and, and kind of shoving people and, and running into them and some elbows and this was, he had a whip, yes, but this is not um, Indiana Jones uh, beating up the thugs in the Cairo marketplace. Okay, this was a temple cleansing, not a temple clobbering. That's important to remember. Jesus did not do violence to anyone. He drove the animals out. They could be recovered. He poured the money on the floor. That could be picked up. Even the pigeons, it says, he didn't just let loose and, and shoo them away. He said, take them out of here. So he caused no one harm, either physically or financially. It was a temple cleansing, not a temple clobbering. And he said, do not make my father's house a house of trade. And everyone knew he was right. There there was some level of conviction on the hearts of everyone, even the leaders. No one, that, that's why there were no calls for arrest at the begin at this first temple cleansing. They knew he was right. 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. This is a quote from Psalm 69.9. And this is a psalm written by King David. It's a, it's a lament song, psalm, excuse me. And he cries out to God uh, for help. His enemies surround him. His enemies are attacking him. Yet in the midst of this this difficult time, he still praises God and he still gives thanks to God and he still, it says, consumed for zeal for uh, 
your house, for God's house, which means to totally be consumed or absorbed with a passionate concern for God's glory and true worship. So Jesus is the ultimate faithful covenant member of Psalm 69.9. There's never been anyone more consumed with passion for right worship and for God's glory than Jesus. Also notice how saturated his disciples are. In order to be able to see something happening in front of you real time and then recall a piece of scripture that matches that, that only comes from spending some serious time in God's word. These guys knew the word of God. Jesus, the true temple in verse 18. The Jews, remember, primarily Jewish leadership in and around Jerusalem that stand, stood opposed to Jesus, the Jewish leadership, Sanhedrin. What sign do you show us for doing these things? Remember, the Jewish leadership controlled what went on in the temple. And what they are saying is, we didn't authorize this. We, we never gave anybody permission to drive them out. They most likely gave permission to come in, the vendors. But they, they were saying, we didn't say, we didn't set this up. Did you check with, with anybody? We're the leaders here. They didn't say, go back and, and bring everybody back in. They didn't say, hey, hey, sir, um, you're way out of line. Bring those animals back in here again because they were convicted. They knew it was the right thing to do. So they weren't defending the practice that had been happening. But at the same time, their pride had been wounded and they were saying, all right, um, who are you to bypass our authority? Give us a sign. Jesus answers them without really giving them what they want. He says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And look at their response. Destroy this temple? Are you out of your mind? It's taken 46 years to build this. That's impossible. You cannot build it in three days. If you have an ESV, there's a footnote under 46 years to build this temple. It says, or this temple was built 46 years ago. Either way, what they're trying to communicate in this, in this verse here is that, if you, just let me back up just a minute. There were two temples. There was the original temple built by Solomon. That was destroyed when God brought his people into exile. When they returned from exile, there was what's called a second temple. You've heard the phrase second temple Judaism. That's referring to the time period of, of the second temple, temple after exile, post-exile. So this was the second temple but Herod the Great, not the same one ruling right now, but Herod the Great had taken upon himself to rebuild, um, beautify, improve, and expand the temple and the temple complex. He's the one that took it from 17 acres to 36 acres. There were 18,000 workers, and they were quarrying stone, bringing it back for years, for decades, improving the temple with stone and carved wood and precious metals. And so when they said it's taken 46 years, what they mean is this, this beautification process on the second temple has been going on for 46 years. And wouldn't you know it, the Jewish historian Josephus talks about this and he tells us when Herod the Great started the beautification process and it was 46 years from when Jesus visited the temple. So that's what they're saying. They're saying all this, this work that's been going on and was still going on, it wasn't completed at this time. That's taken 46 years. No way. You're going to rebuild it in three days. 
Well, he had given them a sign. Here's the sign, tear this temple down. Well, they weren't about to do that. But what a sign that is. I mean, if, if he was able to rebuild it in three days, certainly he was, uh, had the authority to, to decide what goes on within the temple. That would have been an incredible sign. But verse 21 tells us he was speaking about the temple of his body, not the physical stone temple. The physical stone temple in Jerusalem was the one address that symbolically represented God's presence with his people. That is where God came down and met with his people, was in his temple. It was also the only place where atoning sacrifices for sin were allowed, the only place where they were accepted by God. Jesus, who is called Emmanuel, which means God's, God with us, is the ultimate expression, uh, the ultimate reality of God coming down and being with his people. Jesus is not where the atoning sacrifice happened. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice that happened once and for all. So Jesus fulfills everything that the earthly temple was designed to accomplish. Jesus is the true temple. And through his own death and resurrection, he renders the old covenant and the old temple, the physical stone temple, obsolete. That's one of the points he's trying to make. But nobody caught it. Nobody caught it at the time. The Jews didn't understand what he meant. His disciples didn't understand what he meant. It was only later, it tells us, after his resurrection, that they recalled these words and said, oh yeah, remember that? He was talking about himself, not the temple. It says they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. They believed both the Old Testament scriptures that pointed to his resurrection and they remembered Jesus saying, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And just like at the end of the account of the, the water to wine account, remember that back in verse 11, it says, and his disciples believed in him. Same thing here. They believed. It's not talking about initial belief. It's not talking about coming to faith. They had done that already. It's talking about their faith being strengthened, confirmed, made strong, clarified. They believed. Only one address. Let's summarize this passage by saying Jesus entered the temple at Passover and saw that it had become defiled. It was cluttered with buyers and sellers and animals and money changers when it should have been kept clean and open for prayer and worship. In a display of holy zeal for God's glory and pure worship, Jesus cleansed the temple. When his authority was challenged and the Jewish leaders asked for a sign, Jesus gave an enigmatic response that no one understood at the time. Only after his resurrection did his disciples understand and believe that he was talking about raising himself and not the temple. That's what is going on in this passage I want to talk just for a moment about signs in John. The first half of the book of John is all about signs. And there are seven of them. We looked at one. The first sign was turning water to wine at the wedding in Cana. This is the second sign, the cleansing of the temple. The second sign points to Jesus as the true temple and through his own resurrection renders the old covenant and the old temple obsolete. We need to see that. No more animal sacrifices. 
No, no more earthly temple. That's why we don't have a centralized temple over in Jerusalem, and we never will. We don't need it. God will never uh, reinstitute a centralized temple with animal sacrifices. He will not do that. That, that would nullify everything that Christ has done. It's not happening. However, all signs serve to authenticate Jesus' ministry and his message. All signs reveal or manifest, display Jesus' glory. And all signs contribute to John's overall goal of writing so that people may believe in Jesus and by believing have life in his name. And we're talking about spiritual life coming to life spiritually, because the Bible says that until we are born again, until we are called by God, we are spiritually dead. We remain dead in our sins. This is talking about spiritual life. And this is a life that the world does not have. This is a life that the world cannot offer. If you're seeking true life, if you're seeking spiritual life, you will not find it in the world. You will not find it through your own journey, your own introspective searching of your own soul, your own searching of of, uh, philosophers from ancient Greece. You will not find the life that Jesus offers. It is spiritual life. It is eternal life. It is a quality of life that can only be had through faith in Jesus Christ. I want to reread John 20, 30 through 31, because this is our anchor uh, text that tells us why John wrote the book of John. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Once again, John's saying, Jesus did a lot of signs. Jesus said a lot of things. But I'm including these signs. I'm including these words for this purpose. If you've ever seen someone build a a stone pathway, uh, maybe a landscaping expert or, or, or a stone worker or, or somebody who, who's skilled in that trade, if you've ever seen that happen, you know that when they build a, a stone path, not, not the preformed stones from Home Depot or Menards or Lowe's or whatever, not the ones that are identical, I'm talking about actual stones that are irregular, that, that don't come pre-shaped. These stones are sometimes brought in on a pallet surrounded by wire or chicken wire or something like that. And what they'll do is they'll take some stones and use them, but they won't use all the stones. Some of them just don't have a place in the path that they're trying to make. So they'll take some stones and they'll select them, and then they'll put them down and they'll arrange them in a certain order. Sometimes they'll even take uh, tools and they'll knock off a little corner or something to make it fit right. And then after they've got it laid out, then they'll come back and then they'll set them down and, and set them in some kind of material that, that holds them in place. And this path has been specifically designed to lead from one point to another. 
That's kind of like what John is doing here. John is using some signs, but not all of them. Some he's leaving on the pallet. And, and he's not recording every single word that Jesus said. He's recording some words. So sometimes he'll just take, take a tool and knock off a corner. We, we're not told everything that Jesus said, even in these accounts. And then he's arranged them. He's, he's, he's laid them out in this, this pathway kind of design. And then he set them in something permanent. It's called the word of God. This is never going to change. It's set. And the purpose of laying out this path is to lead people to believe in Jesus. That is the purpose of these signs. That's the purpose of this path. Let me make it a little bit more personal. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, God wants you to follow this path and to place your faith in Jesus Christ. These are designed, these are laid out to lead people to put their faith and belief in Jesus Christ. Are you walking in the path that God has laid out? Are you walking in faith in Jesus Christ? Or are you walking on your own path? Are you walking on a path that's been laid out for you by the world? Belief plus Jesus equals life. I also want to talk about how God's address is not convenient, but it is common. There's only one address where God can be found. There is only one address where we can find God's grace. There is one, only one address where we can find forgiveness for sins. There is only one address where we can find God's favor, and that address is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. And unlike big box hardware stores or coffee shops or even gas stations, which by design have multiple convenient addresses, God's grace and forgiveness by design can only be found at one address, and that address is Jesus. And some might say, well, that's not very convenient. And in reply, I would say, you're right, it's not. It's not supposed to be. By design, it's not supposed to be. And the Bible's up front about this. It's, it's, very, uh, it's a straight shooter as, as far as the convenience of the gospel. It calls the way of God narrow. It calls the way of God difficult. The Bible does not present the path to God and, and the way of God as convenient. God cannot be found at our convenience theologically, spiritually speaking. So it's not convenient. On the other hand, from a practical perspective, it is common. And let me, let me tell you what I mean by that. God has made finding him, from a practical standpoint, easier than finding a gas station. Easier than, than finding a corner gas station. Uh, earlier we said 9,000 Dunkin' Donuts. That's a, that's a lot. 15,000 Starbucks, oh, that's a lot. And then the granddaddy of them all, gas stations, 145,000, that is a lot. In other words, if you're looking for a gas station, it's not hard to find one. Just start driving around, you'll run into one. There are over 300,000 Protestant churches in the U.S. Over twice as many than the gas stations. 
That's pretty common. If you can find a gas station, then, then you should be able to find a church. In addition to churches, there are millions of believers in the United States. Followers of Jesus shouldn't be that hard to find. There are millions. And then there is the Word of God. Uh, the, the estimates are 4.7 Bibles per household. Per household. For every home in America, on average, 4.7 Bibles. Uh, 100 million Bibles are printed in the U.S. each year. A low estimate, low estimate, 6 billion Bibles in the United States. And that's not even online. You, you search Bible, one click, boom, you can start reading Genesis 1-1. It's there. It's, it's common. In fact, the Word of God, the knowledge of His Son and local assemblies of believers, all more common than your local corner gas station. So on one hand, yes, it's not convenient, but it is common. This nation has been drenched with Scripture. This nation has been saturated with the proclamation of God's Word. This nation has been given so much light. With so many Bibles and believers and churches, there, there really are no excuses for, for saying, I, I couldn't find God's Word. I, I had no idea how, how to, to reach out and get started. I, I just didn't know where to go. If we can find a gas station, then we could find a faithful church. Well, in addition to serving as one of the seven signs in John, the temple cleansing is also a portent of things to come. Just as Jesus cleansed the temple, Jesus will cleanse his church. He will cleanse this nation. And he will cleanse the world. When the king and head of the church returns, he will separate for all eternity the wheat from the tares, the good fish from the bad fish, the sheep from the goats, Believers will be gathered into his barn, unbelievers gathered, bound, and burned. Believers will be uh, gathered into eternal life, unbelievers into eternal punishment, outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Believers will be with God forever, unbelievers will be in the lake of fire forever. This, this temple cleansing is, is a picture of Jesus the King cleansing, purifying, making a distinction. And there is only one address for finding shelter from the wrath of God when he visits the world in judgment, and that address is the Lord Jesus Christ. God so loved the world that he sent his only son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but will have eternal life. That address is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we get there by putting our faith in him, by believing in Jesus. Amen. Heavenly Father, we, we are so grateful for your word, which points to Jesus over and over again. Your word points to your son. And we understand that, that the way is narrow. The way is difficult. We understand that there are not multiple ways or multiple paths 
There's only one after us. That's the cross. Father, we ask that, that we would continue on that path, that we would never stray from it, that we would believe and keep believing in Jesus. Amen.